So here's the thought for today. If you live to do what you want, you will end up not doing what you want. But if you just give up doing what you want, you will end up doing what you want. In other words, actually, the road to freedom and the road to self-fulfillment lies through self-denial, death to self, as it was taught by Jesus, and no other way. So let's unpack that. As we start, i got to do a little cleanup on aisle three. A couple of days ago, I was talking about anger and hunger in the body and emotional health and spoke in a way that made it sound like there was no such thing or I thought there was no such thing as personality disorders. So I just need to go back to that. A couple of folks helpfully pointed that out. There is for sure such a thing as personality disorder. When I was first starting my clinical internship in psychology, I saw 10 patients. One of them suffered from borderline personality and it was excruciating. Working with that one person took more time and effort outside than the other nine put together. One of our primary goals was just for her to be able to make it through a year without attempting suicide because the pain was so high. And very often in the church, we have not spoken about mental health or emotional health in ways that honor the suffering or understand the ordeal of folks. And then at the same time, it's often true that when people in the secular world talk about issues of medicine or issues of psychology, we don't really have a framework from which we can talk about moral and spiritual realities. So I want to come back again to Dallas's little chart because I think that's part of what's so brilliant about it. Um, uh, you can have problems in the social dimension, the way that people treat you, your environment, or within your body, there's a genetic component. And so those are sometimes talked about as nature, the body, your genes, and nurture, your environment. And sometimes people will talk as though that's all there is, nature and nurture. But then there's this other dimension, there's the will. And that's very important. Sometimes in the church, we're guilty of moralizing where we talk as though willpower alone could suffice for everything. Are you anxious? Stop being afraid. Are you depressed? Get with the program. Joy is a choice. Just choose joy. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. So... Uh, we can be guilty of moralizing to put all the weight of transformation on the human will, which cannot bear that. Or we can be guilty of psychologizing, simply talking about people as products of the social sphere and the bodily sphere, environment, nature, and nurture. And that's not true, too. We badly need a way of understanding personhood that acknowledges the complexity and the difficulty of our genetic inheritance, the environment in which we live, uh, our psychological makeup, and the fact that we have a will and that we are morally accountable to God and that God wants to be with us and to help us and that nature and nurture and will and God are part of the formation and the transformation of human beings. Which brings me to the writing of Dallas for today. This is page 65. When Jesus says we must lose our lives if we are to find them, he is teaching on the negative side that we must not make ourselves and our survival the ultimate point of reference in our world. Now this moves us well beyond medical or biological considerations. Dr. Martin Luther King used to say, the person who has no reason to die is not fit to live. My survival is no longer my ultimate reference point. That's part of why a merely evolutionary framework that just simply looks at the perpetuation of genetic material can never be the ultimate framework for human life. 
our survival must not, in effect, we must not, in effect, treat ourselves as God should be treated or treat ourselves as God. Thus, Paul shockingly says, covetousness is idolatry. Isn't that somewhat exaggerated? No. Covetousness is self-idolatry, for it makes my desires paramount. It means I would take what I want if I could. And then this sentence, we'll camp here for a minute. To defeat covetousness, we learn to rejoice that others enjoy the benefits they do. To defeat covetousness, I don't get everything I want. I learn, I learn to rejoice that others enjoy the benefits that they do. Now, this is what love does. If I love my children and something real good happens, they make the all-star team, they get into a great school. I rejoice at that. If my team wins the Super Bowl because I identify with them, I rejoice with that. There's a program called The Bachelor. I don't recommend it. It's a bad show. Don't watch it. I know people that do. It's not good. But if you got a contestant on The Bachelor and you really like that person and they get the rose, you're glad for them. But the way covetousness works is I look at somebody else and I think, I don't like that they have that. I was talking to two friends yesterday, um, both their dads, and uh, we were talking about the BPWPC syndrome, which is bad parents with perfect children. And that can be a painful thing to just look and say, man, uh, I'm not perfect, but at least I know I'm a better parent than them. And look at how well their kids turned out. And that gnawing desire to have what somebody else has, or at least for them not to have it. That's covetousness at its heart. Now, when we love somebody, we're freed of that. My brother sent me a work evaluation a couple of months ago that was just rave, glowing about him. I was thrilled at that. My sister just gave a couple of amazing sermons about depression and uh, how God can be present in it, and uh, way better than I could ever talk about that subject, and I was thrilled with that. Well, the idea is that we go through life because God is our Father, where every human being is my brother and my sister. And therefore, I learned to rejoice that they're enjoying the benefits that they do. But of course, I, I'm not able to do that right now. That's not in me. And so, I begin to practice self-denial. Self-denial is simply, death to self is simply saying, if there's a conflict between what I feel like and what is good, I will choose the good. That's all it is. It's not bad to have desire. God gave us desire. Desires are a good thing. But if desire is on the throne of my life rather than the will of God, it will destroy me. To make my desires paramount, uh, Dallas writes, is what Paul described as having a mind of the flesh, which is a state of death. So now in self-denial, I give up getting what I want, having my will be the ultimate guide for my life. I die to myself in that sense. And then on the positive side, Dallas writes what that means. Again, this is page 65. This is so good. What does that mean on the positive side if we practice self-denial? It means that they will, for the first time, be able to do what they want to do once God's life takes over inside of us. Of course, of course they will be able to steal, lie, and murder all they want, which will be none at all. When I have died to myself and that gets into my body and my habits and my mind, I don't want to do those things. But they will also be able to be truthful and transparent and helpful and sacrificially loving with joy 
And they will want to be. Their life will be caught up in this way, in God's life. This is so good. They will want the good and be able to do it. The only true human freedom. They will want the good and be able to do it. The only true human freedom. See, the alternatives are that I can want the good and be unable to do it. That's the alcoholic that can't stop drinking. That's Romans 7. That's all of us in the flesh on our own. Or I can want the bad. But because the bad is misaligned with shalom, with the way things are, it doesn't work. Following whatever I feel like doing becomes disordered. It's disordered desire. And it always leads to destruction. There was a movie years ago, got remade as a musical. It's called Little Shop of Horrors. And it's really a parable, if you have ever seen it, about addiction narrowly or desire more generally. When desire is placed upon the throne and there is this plant, feed me, but I feed on life, I feed on blood, I will never be satisfied. And desire is that way. Whatever it is for, approval, success, more money, more pleasure, uh, it can never be satisfied. That's the nature of desire. Interestingly, the plant, if you've ever seen that movie, his name is Seymour. That's not an accident. Seymour, Seymour. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. If I devote my life to doing what I want to do, I will end up being slaved by it. And then I will not be free. I will not be free to not drink. I will not be free to not try to impress people. I will not be free not to give in to my angry impulses. I will not be free not to wonder all the time what are other people thinking about me. I will not be free not to envy. I will not be free not to lie. The only true freedom is to desire the good and be able to do it. So, that's the invitation today. Um, uh, think about somebody that you might be apt to covet what they've got. And instead, ask God to give you joy that they enjoy that benefit. Somebody else's money or body, their looks, or their mind, their IQ, or their achievements, or their success, or their marriage, or their children. And then ask God, how could I serve that person today? Write them a note, encourage them, bless them. God, would you help me to let go of my need to have my way, for my will to be done. This is the journey that we're on. Because the only real freedom is to choose the good and be able to do it. That's the road we're on. See you next time. Thanks for listening. You can join the conversation and more by visiting becomenew.me slash subscribe.